Well, thank you very, very much. I am so excited to be here. I'm excited to be here for a whole bunch of reasons, but uh, I didn't plan on mentioning this, but I will mention this for a moment. Um, so um, First Baptist, San Francisco, some of you are aware of this, you planted a church many, many years ago in San Jose, uh, and today that church is called Church on the Hill, and it's still thriving and doing really well. My, my dad and his parents attended Church on the Hill, and that's where my dad met Jesus, and as a kid was, was baptized. And I got a chance to speak there a few times recently, and um, got to share with them, like, hey, you, you, you all have been such a, a, like, the reason I'm up here today is because of the legacy that you have invested in my family. And so I say that again right here. Because of the faithfulness and the investment of this church community over the years, I'm standing here today um, as somebody who knows Jesus. And, and so just I want to take a moment to say thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you've done for my family. Um, so that's just, that's one reason I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Another reason I'm excited to be here, though, um, is, uh, yeah, um, is because I, I'm excited to share something with you that I think is really near to the heart of God. Um, because it's near to the heart of God, I know it's near to the heart of this church. Um, today I want to have a conversation uh, about uh, what we'll call remarkable compassion. Okay, that's the title of today's talk is remarkable compassion. And just so we're all on the same page right out the gate, let me tell you uh, what I mean when I say that. So if you look at that word compassion and you break it down, you've got calm and then passion. Passion means to suffer and calm, C-O-M, means with. So to suffer with. That's what compassion means. Compassion means to stand with or to stand for those who are suffering. And as we said, like, this is something that's really near to the heart of God, isn't it? Um, we know if you open up the scriptures all throughout the Bible, it's very, very clear that God loves every person on this planet, right? Every man, woman, and child. Uh, for God so loved the world. world, well done, that he gave his only son. But it's also really clear that if you open up the scriptures all the way from, from Genesis to Revelation, right, beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it's very clear that there are some people that have a special place in God's heart. There are some people that make the top of his list, and we know who they are. It's the orphan, it's the widow, it's the poor, and it's the sojourner, or in our term today, it's the immigrant. So in other words, it's those who are without a family, those who are without a home, those who have suffered deep loss, those who are, who are vulnerable, those who are without protection, those who don't have a voice, like they have a special place in God's heart. It's absolutely clear. Psalm 82, 3 and 4, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy. That's literally one of dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of scriptures all throughout the Bible to make it absolutely clear what God's heart is towards those who are vulnerable. Uh, and because this is a defining characteristic of God. Uh, this has been a defining characteristic of God's people all the way since the very, very beginning. Um, in fact, did you know that the first known hospital in every nation across the globe was actually started by the church? Did you know that? It's actually started by the Christian movement. If you look at prison reform, education reform, uh, women's rights, the abolition of slavery, they all trace their roots back to the Christian movement. And the same is true with adoption. Uh, we actually have written records of this old Roman practice, how when a child would be, uh, uh, was born into a family, what would happen is the child would be placed down at the feet of its father, and if the father stooped down and picked up that child into his arms, the child was said to have been 
like legitimized and welcomed into the family. It's beautiful. The problem is that sometimes the father didn't stoop down and pick up the kid for whatever reason. Like maybe the child looked sick or frail. Maybe the child wasn't the preferred gender of the day. If for whatever reason the father didn't stoop down and pick up the kid, instead what would happen is they would take this child outside of the city to this designated place where it would be left alone to die. They called it infant exposure. It was totally common, acceptable practice of the time. It's heartbreaking. But it was the early followers of Jesus. It was early Christians that reversed that practice. These these early followers of Jesus would go out to these places on a regular basis and they would rescue these children. And they would bring, bring them into their own homes and they would raise them up as their own beloved sons and daughters. And, by the way, it was the, the Christians that put pressure on the Roman government to outlaw that practice. Like, so that's our, you're talking about legacy here today. I mean, that, that's our legacy as God's people. That's our legacy as the church. The same is true with foster care. Uh, let me tell you about a guy named Charles Brace. Um, Charles Loring Brace was born in the, the 1800s in the northeastern part of the U.S., and he, um, his parents were followers of Jesus. When Charles was uh, uh, young, he placed his faith in Christ as well, and one day he was sitting in church, just like you are today, and he was listening to a message from a pastor, just like you are today, and the pastor said something that just radically impacted his life, just like I did with you a moment ago. I'm kidding, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, but the pastor said something that just totally, like, just connected with him in a really, really deep way. And, and this is basically what the pastor said. And I'm going to paraphrase. The pastor basically said, you know, when we stop and, and we really think about it, and we consider all that God has done for us in our moments of need, all of the compassion and the love and the grace and the mercy that he's poured out onto us in our moments of need, in our moments of brokenness, it's impossible for us to think that when we see those who are in need around us, it's impossible for us to think that we too now, we too now don't have some level of responsibility. I totally butchered it. I'm going to say it again. It's worth repeating. When we stop and we think about all of the love and compassion that God has poured out onto us in our moments of need, it's impossible for us to believe that we don't have at least some level of responsibility to do something when we see those who are in need around us. You follow me? And it just, it made sense to Charles. So a few years would go by, and he was in New York City. And the, Charles was, was in seminary. He was studying to become a pastor. And so when he was in seminary, he w- went on a walk, and he walked through the streets of New York, and he um, walked into this neighborhood called Five Points. And if you're familiar at all with New York City, you might know that Five Points, at, at that time, was a neighborhood that was known for its crime and its poverty and its prostitution it's gang violence. If you've seen the movie Gangs of New York, which I'm sure none of you have, um, you might remember this, <laughs> all right? So <laughs> Five Points was just, a, it was a rough neighborhood. He walked into that neighborhood, and he said that his heart just melted because what he saw in front of him were hundreds of kids living in these dangerous, broken environments. And when he saw what he saw that day, his mind raced back to what his pastor had said before, and he realized in light of all that God had done for him and all the ways that God had met him in his moments of need, he had to do something with what he saw in front of him. He had some level of responsibility to do something. And so he did. At the age of 27 years old, Charles got some of his buddies together, and they started what they called the Children's Aid Society. 
And the Children's Aid Society started all kinds of programs that dealt like at a root level, a systemic level of what they were seeing in front of them. And so, for example, they started the first, um, they started the first ever free school lunch programs. They started uh, uh, schools for children who are disabled. They started the first ever free dental clinics for kids. They started the first ever uh, PTA, Parent Teachers Association, came from the Children's Aid Society. Most notably, though, they started what we now call foster care. They would help these kids who were living in these broken environments, like, find loving, stable homes to live in while their parents did what they needed to do to create healthy environments once again. And when they did, the families were reconciled back together. And what morphed and evolved from there became what we now call, in America, the modern foster care system. So follow me. Foster care was started by a pastor. Foster care was started by a Christian who understood that in light of all that God has done for us, like, surely we can do the same for someone around us. Isn't that cool? That, that's our legacy as God's people. That's our legacy as the church. And I'm excited to be here today to be able to share with you because this, this doesn't just have to be our past. But God is calling us to, God is calling, uh, us, us to make this our present as well. About four or five years ago, my wife and I uh, became foster parents, and we started welcoming in these, these kiddos into our home, these kids who had been abused or neglected and were in, in, in need of uh, just a, a loving home for a season, and we started welcoming in these kids, and honestly, uh, very quickly, our hearts just broke for these kids that were coming into our home. Um, again, if you're not that familiar with foster care, sometimes a child needs to be removed from their biological family for a season um, because it's, 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 a, it's a broken environment. There's some kind of trauma has happened, whether it's neglect or it's abuse. So these kids, honestly, had been through things that nobody should go through, especially children. So we started welcoming these kids into our home, and, um, and, and very quickly, again, our, our hearts is broken. At the time, I was pastoring a, a small church in, in South San Jose, which is where we're coming from today. And, uh, and, and we just started talking with some of the other church leaders, and we said, hey, what if what if it wasn't just our family or another family doing this? What if our whole church community were to come together? And what if we were to work together and all engage in what we believed was the most vulnerable population in the Bay Area, children and families in foster care? So we came up with all these ways. We were a church of about 100 people. Um, we said we can't do everything, but we can do something. And so we worked together. We came up with all these strategies of how we were going to do that. And uh, here's what happened. Some social workers here in the Bay Area heard uh, about what we wanted to do, and they came out and met with us, and they said, hey, we think this is cool. Like, we're happy to partner with you guys in this. Um, they said, but here's the deal. They said, the reality is, is that the crisis in the foster care system in the Bay Area, it's just, it's bigger than your church. She said, it's bigger than any one church. She said, do you think that there might be other churches that might want to do the same thing? And so she, she asked us, and this is, the, this is the phrase she used. She said, would you guys consider spearheading a faith alliance? To which I asked, what does that mean? <laughs> what's, a faith, what's a faith alliance? Like, what does that mean to you when you ask that? I said, what would that look like? And she said, well, um, she said, Here, the bottom line is this. She said, the reality is that there are more children entering into foster care today in the Bay Area than there are homes that are ready for them. So what's, being ha what's happening is now not just are they being removed from their biological family, which is heartbreaking enough, but now they're being displaced from their cities and their communities and their schools and their teachers and their therapists and their, and their extended family. Everything that was safe and familiar and comfortable and secure for them is now being taken away, and it's just adding trauma upon trauma upon trauma simply because there aren't homes 
willing to, to welcome in these children. That's true for every county in the Bay Area, all 10 counties up and down the Bay Area. It's, it's more true here in San Francisco than any other place in the Bay Area, as you can imagine. 62% of kids that actually enter into foster care in San Francisco are sent out of San Francisco simply due to a shortage of homes. 62%. Um, but it's true, it's true everywhere. It's true in San Jose where I am. It's true right here. So long story short, or long story long, um, we said yes. And we launched this thing called Foster the Bay. It's been about four years now. And it has been one of the greatest joys of my life, watching the way the Bay Area Church is responding. We went from one small church in South San Jose four years ago now to um, actually, as of this week, 100 churches up and down the Bay Area working together, linking, you know, our linked arms hand in hand, moving forward together in the Bay Area to, to engage us. We're seeing, we're seeing foster families step forward. We're seeing support for those fa- families being mobilized. It's been one of the greatest joys of my life to watch the way the Bay Area Church is, is partnering with government agencies to address this. Isn't that cool? And I'm so, I'm so glad that that First Baptist, um, we've been in conversation with your leaders over the last year about what, what would it look like for First Baptist to be a part of this as well to invite you all to, to, to consider whether or not God might be stirring in your heart. And I'm just so honored to be able to be here to be able to share this with you. Um, especially right here in the city. I, I wasn't planning on saying this. I'm gonna sh- I am going to share this. I'm going to share one more story before I go on to my last chunk. Um, when we were first launching here in the city and started connecting with churches, we, um, we got connected with an organization here in the city that's actually contracted by, um, contracted by the county to work with kids who are uh, coming into... Um, foster care that had been trafficked, that had been um, uh, sexually exploited. And she, she reached out to us and said, we heard about you guys coming in, and well, can we sit down and chat? And I said, sure. And we, we met over at Phil's, and um, she was just t- telling us about what they did, and, and she said, I'm just, I'm just I'm excited about working with churches. She said, um, after this, uh, she, she, said there were, uh, uh, she said, we right now have 69 open cases of children in the city that have been trafficked. 69 open cases of children who've been sexually exploited. And I, I asked her, I said, how many of those kids have you been able to find homes for? Um, she said, 12. The other 57 kids have been sent out of the Bay Area to other parts of California or other parts of the, of the country to find homes for them, which broke my heart because for so long, I'm gonna, I'm a, I've been a pastor in the Bay Area for a while, for so long as pastors in the Bay Area, we've talked about how passionate we are about human trafficking. And here are 57 kids in our backyard that we can't find homes for. It broke my heart. And at the, at the end of that conversation, um, at the end of that conversation, she said, can I tell you one more thing before I go? She said, I don't want you to think I'm too crazy or charismatic, though. And I said, you can tell me. And she said, well, recently I had this dream. And um, she said, in my dream, she said, there was this house in front of me, and the house is on fire. And she said, the kids that I work with, she said, they, they were inside that house in my dream, and uh, they were in the upper stories, and they were jumping out of the upper story windows. Um, and she said, you have to understand that the suicidal tendencies of the kids that I work with are really, really, really high. Uh, in fact, just youth in foster care, their suicidal tendencies are four times higher than that of the average youth. It's even higher for this population. So she said, they were, she said, these kids in my dream were just jumping out of doing this. And she said, and I was on the ground trying to catch these girls and these boys before they hit the ground. She said, the problem was that there were too many and I couldn't catch them all. She said, but in my dream, 
So he said, in my like desperation, I turned around and I looked and there was a whole crowd of people running up behind me and they started catching the kids with me. She said, right after I had this dream, I heard what the churches in the Bay Area are doing. I heard about Foster the Bay and she said, I want you to know that I think that that crowd in my dream was the church of San Francisco. That's why we exist. That's what we're inviting you into today. When we first started Foster the Bay, we, we started with a few like core beliefs that were going to like shape who we were and it was going to propel us forward. And I want to share those three, with the three, three beliefs with you with the remaining time that I have. Here's the deal. Foster care is not for everybody. Adoption is not for everybody. Remarkable compassion is. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are called into a life of remarkable compassion. Like that's not up for debate. Like that's, that's scripture. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. But foster care is just one expression of that. There's a whole, there's a thousand different ways that you could live a life of compassion. Whatever expression God might call you into, I believe that these three core beliefs can help be an encouragement to you and help be a foundation for however he calls you forward. So let me share these three. That, that basically I'm telling you, you can't check out. Okay, this is for everybody. All right, so here's, here's the first core belief, and that is this, that every person has intrinsic value. Every person has intrinsic value. And we know, you open up the book of Genesis, we were created in the image of God. The book of uh, Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that God spoke us forth from before the foundation of the world. Think about that for a moment. That means that that, you know, your mom and your dad coming together and, and putting you into existence, that moment of your conception, I won't go into any more details, there's little ears here, but that moment when you were, when you were put into being from your mom and your dad, right, that, that moment was second, that was secondary in your existence. What came first was that you were birthed in the heart of God before the foundation of the world. He spoke us forth, every man, woman, and child, from before the foundation of the world. The book of Isaiah says that we are precious to God in his sight. Every person has intrinsic value. We matter to God. I have a buddy who um, is a foster dad. He, he says that one time he got a call for a child who needed a placement, and um, he said, well, I've already got kiddos in the home, and uh, can you tell me a little bit more about this child before I say yes to it, him? I want to make sure that this is going to be like an appropriate fit for my family. And they said, well, we don't know much about him yet. They said, uh, uh, we do know one thing. They say, we, we know he's a biter. <laughs> and so my buddy's like, well, what is that? And you're like, what, what does he bite? <laughs> and he thought, he was like, I'm not sure I want to take in a biter. And he said, as soon as that thought hit him, all of his theology started flooding back into his mind. And he realized that the term biter was an incomplete description of a child. The term biter is an inadequate, in, incomplete description of a human being. He said, because he realized, like, you are more than the worst thing that you've ever done. You're more than your mistakes. And you're more than the worst thing that's ever been done to you. Which, by the way, you might need to be here today just to hear that one simple line, that one simple phrase. So I'm just going to say it one more time. That's just true for you. You are more than the worst thing that you've done. And you're more than the worst thing that's been done to you. You matter to God. You are valuable to God. And that is true for every man, woman, and child across the city and across the Bay Area. 
You know, he proved that, didn't he? That we matter to him. How do you, how do you determine the value of something? We, we determine the value of something by what somebody's willing to pay for it, right? What was God willing to pay for us? His life. God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that cool? That brings me to our second core belief, and that's this. Our second core belief is that their story is our story. Their story is, their story is my story. In fact, I, I might go so far as to say that there may be no time in your life when you are more like God than in the moments when you open up your heart or your home to someone who's in need. Because that's, that's what God's done for us. We've been singing about it all morning. Um, there, there was a time in my life when I was lost and beat up and, and hurting and broken and um, I felt like all of the scars and the wounds from my past, like I had lost any and all hope for my future. And when I was at my lowest and my darkest and most hopeless state, God showed up and he rescued me. And he made a way for me to be brought into his family. And he gave me a hope for my future. Is that your story? When I, when I think about what God has done for me, and all the places I've been, and all the things I've seen, and all the things that I've done, and all the things that have been done to me, when I think about all that he has done for me in my moments of brokenness and pain, and the way that he's brought me out of that, and he's given me a hope, and he's given me a family, it just makes me want to do that for someone else, doesn't it? There's a verse in Ephesians 1. It's one of my favorite verses. It says this. It's, I'll be up here. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Listen to this. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. That's one of the most beautiful truths in all of the world. I love that it says that, that God bringing us into his family actually brought him pleasure, brought him joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. God welcoming us into his family, like he's not sitting there shaking his head, begrudging that he has to welcome. He, it would bring him great joy to welcome you into his family. I love that on, on, a, on a very finite, minute scale, as a foster dad who's welcomed in kiddos into their home, like I, I can kind of relate to this on a, on a very, very small scale. These kids have brought so much joy to our lives. They brought so much laughter, so much fun, so many great memories, so many amazing relationships. We've got, um, I have to protect confidentiality, but one of those kiddos is here with us, and she's, for about an hour, was tearing through this sanctuary today. She just, there's so, they brought so much life and joy and energy into our family. That's a, she's three, so energy is like a really nice word to use. <laughs> she's brought a lot of energy to our family. Um, They've just brought so much fun. It's been, so, it's been such an incredible experience. One of the kiddos that we brought into our home, she, you know, she was reconciled back with her, her mom, and because of the relationship that we've been able to have with them and she was able to have with our church, they've start, now started coming to our church every Sunday. Right now in, in San Jose, they're probably worshiping at our, at our home church. At her, mom got ba- her biological mom got baptized this last spring. It's been like, it just, I can tell you story after story, but the amazing experiences and the great joy that it's brought. I love to think that, like, the way that I look at the little girl that we've been fostering for the last few years, that the joy that I get with her, that God gets that with us. Isn't that cool? At the same time, God welcoming us into his family 
Yes, it brought him great pleasure. Yes, it brought him great joy, but it came with something else, didn't it? It came with the sacrifice. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There was joy. There's also a cross. In the same way, when you and I show remarkable compassion towards others, there will always, 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 always be a cost involved. Um, when people hear that my wife and I foster, what we oftentimes will get is like, oh, that's really cool that you guys do that. That's so great. I could never do that, is what they follow it up with. <laughs> I could never do that. They say, isn't that hard? Like, isn't it, isn't it difficult to, like, welcome kids into your home and, like, you pour your heart out in them, you pour your life out into them for, like, months or years? We've been fostering a little girl for almost three years. It'll be, it'll be three years in January. So isn't it hard, like you pour your heart out into them for years and then like one day you just get a phone call or one day the social worker comes and they pick them up and you never see them again? Like, isn't that bothering you? Isn't that difficult? You know what the answer to that is? Yes, it's hard. <laughs> of course it's hard. I'm not, I'm not a cold-hearted robot. Of course it's hard. I remember our, our first placement, we got her, she was, she was four months old when we got her. Beautiful little girl. She very quickly became an important part of our family. We had her for just under a year. Um, she, she took her first steps in my living room. Um, she said her first words with us. Uh, she called me Dada. That was her first word. She called my wife Mama. Because that's what she heard my biological kids calling us. Um, she became a sister to my kids. She was in a, we, we fell in love with this little girl. She was a daughter to us. At the same time, over that year, we were not just getting to know this little girl, we were also getting to know her biological parents. And yes, like the, the reality is her parents had made some mistakes. There was a reason why their daughter was with us. But they were doing everything that they possibly could to get their little girl back, taking all the right steps. So after almost a year, the judge gave the green light and said, okay, it's time. And so I remember like it was yesterday, I remember handing this little girl back into the arms of her father at my front door. My son uh, told me it was the first time he'd ever seen me cry. Because we wept that day and the next day. Of course it's hard. But you don't show compassion because it makes you feel good, right? Compassion's not about you. You, you don't foster to, to get a child for your family. You foster to give your family to a child. You see the difference? That's, that's true with every expression of compassion. You don't show compassion to get something for yourself. You show, you show compassion to give yourself to something. That's at the heart of compassion. But if we are willing to embrace both the, the pleasure and the sacrifice, both like the, the pain and the, and, and the joy, it's incredible to think about the impact that we can have on people's lives. It's incredible to think about the reflection that we can give of what Jesus has done for us to a watching world, isn't it? That brings me to our third and, and, and final core belief, and that's this, that our investment in the lives of the vulnerable will bring long-term impact. Um, here's what I mean by that. As you can imagine, if you have no background at all in child welfare, um, kids who grow up without stable, healthy environments, they're far more susceptible to all kinds of other issues as they get older, okay? Um, so for example, I've already kind of mentioned trafficking and exploitation, but you know, the FBI did a study a few years ago that said that 60% of children that were rescued from human trafficking here in the States, 60% came from the foster care system. 
Half of all kids that age out of foster care, if they're not placed into a loving, stable home, half will be unemployed in their mid-20s, a third will be on the streets, uh, half will have uh, a substance addiction, uh, more than half will have PTSD. In fact, you are more likely to have PTSD as a foster child than a war veteran, twice as likely. Like, I could just keep going with incarceration and teen pregnancy and domestic violence and lack of education. Like, the, here's the point. Here's what we realized. Like, we need groups and, and churches and, and individuals and organizations addressing those kinds of things. Like, right when people are in the thick of it. We need people in the Tenderloin today addressing homelessness and addressing lack of employment. Right? We need people down in St. James Park in my neck of the woods doing the very same things. Like, we need groups like BAATC and IJM that are spreading awareness about trafficking and actually knocking down doors and rescuing people who are being trafficked right now. We need those things. We have to keep doing it. We need more of it. But what if in addition to that, we also go all the way upstream and we care for the kids before they ever enter into the issues? What, like what would the statistics in the Bay Area look like in 15 years or in 20 years if every kid that entered into foster care today was immediately placed into a loving home? How would that change the landscape of the Bay Area? So what we began to realize, and, and this has become a mantra for us, something we deeply believe in, is that the best way that we can see a transformed Bay Area tomorrow is if we care for vulnerable children today. And I do believe, my, and this is my prayer, is that God might be stirring, and I, I, I hope that perhaps God is stirring, like I said, in some of your hearts to maybe learn a little bit more about what it might look like to actually open up your home to a child in need. Whether you live here in the city or around, up and down the 10 counties of the Bay Area, we need homes for these kids. Um, but I know that's not for most of you. For most of you, that's not what God is leading you to do. For a few of you, if that's you today, I want to just encourage you to challenge you to just, just, take, it, just take a step to learn a little bit more, and we've, I'll tell you how to do that in just a moment. For most of you, that's not probably um, what God is calling you to do. However, there is another role for you to play. One of the reasons why there's such a shortage of foster homes is because retention of foster homes is really, really low. Uh, in fact, 60% of foster families won't make it past their first year. Okay, that, that dropout rate increases to 80% by the second year because it's really hard. I've already shared with you, it's hard to welcome kiddos into your home and then have to say goodbye. After we had to say goodbye to that first little girl, it's really hard to just the next day say, great, let's go do that again. <laughs> That's hard. Um, it's also hard sometimes when kids come into your home who have been through, been, you know, coming from hard places have seen difficult things. Sometimes in their pain and in their confusion, they'll act out of that trauma or act out of the things that they've witnessed. It's, it's difficult to, to sometimes love and care for kids. Honestly, if I'm being just totally frank, it's felt like hell in my homes at times. It's been chaotic. It's been hard. Do you know what changes retention? Do you know what enables a foster family, though, to, to, be a, to, to foster longer and healthier is if they take that journey within the context of community. If they have people around them that will come alongside and will support them in tangible, practical, emotional, spiritual ways. We call this, uh, the, the, these people support friends. Our, our hope is that every church that we partner with would raise up at least one foster family with a team of four support friends. That's our vision. It, th there are, across the Bay Area, about 2,000 kids that entered into foster care last year. About half of those kids were sent out of their city or out of their county to another place to be able to find homes. That's about 1,000 kids. There are more than 3,500 churches in the Bay Area. If even a fraction 
of Bay Area churches raise up a foster family with a team of support friends, we'll have more than enough families to meet the need. And so that's our hope today. A support friend is, is, is somebody, again, who just comes alongside and, and provides practical, emotional, spiritual support. And so it could be bringing a meal once or twice a month. It could be um, giving rides. It could be babysitting once or twice a month. In those, in those seasons of, honestly, what felt like hell, we had support friends that would come alongside, and they'd come and they'd spend time with our kids. And my wife and I could go out and get a date night. We could cry together and laugh together and, and pray together and get refreshed to step back into the fray. We have a support friend, my wife and I, they send a cleaner to our house once a month. It's awesome. <laughs> um, so basically a support friend just comes alongside and provides practical support. If that's you, if you're interested in learning more about fostering or about being a support friend, I want to ask you to do one thing. Come out to the back table in the, in, in the lobby out there and come back and fill out just a simple next step card. On the next step card, you just fill out your information. Let us know what time we can drop off your foster kid to your house this afternoon as well. <laughs> I'm joking. If you fill out that card, all we're going to do is we're going to send you an email, okay? We're going to send you an email that will just simply tell you about an informational meeting that we actually have coming up right here at First Baptist, as well as some other informational meetings uh, coming up where you can come and just learn a little bit more. That sound good? Okay. Um, let me wrap up with this. I began by th the time by telling you um, what the word compassion means. Let me finish by telling you what the word remarkable means. Okay, today, today's talk is called Remarkable Compassion. This is what remarkable means. Remarkable means you're able to remark on it. In other words, it's worth talking about. Foster care is one expression of compassion, but here's the deal. For those of us who have said yes to Jesus, we're following Jesus, he is calling each one of us into a life of compassion towards others that's worth talking about. In Matthew 5, it says, let your light, this is Jesus talking, he said, let your light shine before others that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Are we living a life that when the watching world sees it, the way that we invest our time and our money and our, our resources and our energy, when they look into our homes, when they look into our church, does it, does it compel them to respond in some way? Or does it simply just look like everyone else? He's calling us into a life of remarkable compassion. And my, my prayer is that each one of us, myself included, will respond.